It's been a little odd here the last couple of months of working through this series, but I truly believe it is somewhat divine in nature, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, obviously there was a few weeks in there where Janet was gracious enough to fill in for me while I was not prepared to be here because I didn't know what was going to happen because as with most of my children, they don't do what I say like, you know, come on, that would, that would be great, now would be a good time. And uh, so he didn't listen to me. But, uh, and then last week, we of course, had Raleigh in, which was fantastic, and I, I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Please. I, it's so important that we're a part of what's going on in Israel, and we pray for these people daily. It's, it's, it's just it's vital, and I wanted you to hear straight from the horse's mouth of how these are God's people. They're His chosen people. They're, they, we've got to have a heart for them, just like we do everybody else. That part of it's not different, but we can't ignore them, and that's what happened, is we focus on, we love our missions. We love going into all the world, and you know what part of the world we tend to ignore? Israel. You know, it's just, it's just insane. And so because of a lot of stuff that's gone on in the early church, it's just trickled through the years. I've told you guys before, but if you, uh, you go into any mainline denomination, I shouldn't say any, but a lot of them, and every pastor will have on his, his uh, bookshelf a thing called systematic theology. And there's always one key component missing out of that, and it has to do with Israel. They always leave it out. And the reason why is they believe that the church replaced Israel. You know, and you saw it, Martin Luther is one example, that quote that he showed last week, how horrible was that? You know, those are things that we, we've lost sight of. Um, so we've got to, we just got to be a part of what's going on. So at a minimum, we got to pray for them daily, you know, and look for opportunities. And sometimes when we, we always assume that because the Jews wrote the Bible, they must know it better than we do. I'm telling you, it's, it's amazing. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, you guys know the name Hal Lindsey by chance? He used to serve, Hal Lindsey, a great writer. I don't even know if he's still alive anymore. Is he? Okay. He's getting up there if he isn't. But he's, uh, he used to serve at the, as the Campus Crusade minister at UCLA. And uh, he was there, and I forget the guy's name, but you would probably know it if I knew he's a football player, and he was Jewish. And the guy comes into one of the meetings, and he starts reading Isaiah 53, Hal does. And the guy gets mad at me, he says, you've got some stinking Christian Bible and you're trying to tell me that I'm wrong. And he said, hey, don't take my word for it, go home and read it. And so he goes and he, he goes home and he, he reads reading. He never read Isaiah 53 before. Why don't they read Isaiah 53? It's, well, they're, they're told to skip it. So he read it and he's like, oh my goodness. So he takes it to his synagogue and asks the rabbi, he said, will you read this? What do you think of this? And the rabbi had never read it. Yeah, you'd think it was a prerequisite, but he hadn't. And so he reads through it, and he's like, huh. And the rabbi's words were, you know, that does sound an awful lot like Jesus. But we don't believe in Jesus, so uh, it can't be that. You know. Now, put that into the Christian theology. It's like, boy, I know the Bible seems to sound like God heals today, but we don't believe in that, so that must not be what it says. You know, we do the same stuff all the time. So it's just, it's just important. Now, you're maybe asking, what does this have to do with your teaching on today? Absolutely nothing. I just like it, okay? So bear with me. Um, I'm getting back in the swing of things. What we're getting into is the book of Daniel. And as I, I was saying earlier is, is I really feel like this is somewhat providential because I want to show in the book of Daniel that perhaps you've never seen before. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to build a foundation of what's going on. I'm going to correct some error that is out there that's widely known in, in Daniel, and you may have heard of it, you may not have, and that's okay, hopefully not. It's always nice when we correct error that nobody had, so that, that works out well. But this is going to lead into our Christmas Eve service, because what you may not realize is how critical the book of Daniel is to what happened in the Christmas story. And I'm going to share some insights to you guys through that on Christmas Eve that night that will open your eyes, I think, to an understanding of what transpired, why it transpired, 
and what we do with that. So it's going to be exciting. So the book of Daniel. Now remember, we just finished up 2 Kings, and at the end of 2 Kings, Babylon comes in, and they take them over. They remove these people, and that is what Daniel is about. It's set during this exiles, and the first three verses is, is the beginning of this. It's when King Nebuchadnezzar, he defeats the Egyptian in a battle called Karshemesh. Yeah, if I'm saying that right, 605 B.C. And then Judah, at that point, comes underneath his authority. Now, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was not the king at this point. His father actually was, and I, I'd say his name. It sounds similar to Nebuchadnezzar, but I'll butcher it. You know, I don't know about you guys, but every time we think of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, I always think of Veggie Tales. It's I'm you know the Bonnie, the, you know what I'm saying. I mean, that's what always goes through my head. But but this is what happened. Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude. He was evil, evil. And you're going to see some of the fear that people have of him. Because, I mean, he would, one of the things he would do when he would go into battle, because he's known as a great warrior. And he was, and he was a great warrior. You know, his father was a king. And after this, you know, this whole battle of Sharshamesh takes place, his dad dies, he rushes back to take over the kingdom. Why did he do that? Before somebody else got in there. That's really the reality of it. But the bottom line is he's a bad guy. When he would, would he take over a country, he would grab that king and he would kill his entire family in front of him. Then he would pluck out his eyes and then he would kill him. He would roast his own sergeants over a fire if they disobeyed him. Alive. Didn't kill him first. So he's not a nice guy, as well as many, many other things, okay? So anyway, he goes in, he takes over uh, Jerusalem, and he grabs a lot of the very prominent citizens, and he takes them with him. Now, there are three different exiles that take place, the third of which is where Jerusalem gets destroyed. And so it gets confusing when you're reading through it, because the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, obviously Daniel, 2 Kings, it all gives you different pieces to the puzzle, and you have to read them all in order to get it. What happens a lot of times is we focus on one book, we read, oh, that's a great story. We miss all of those ancillary details. So I'm going to try to just give those to you for time's sake, versus having to go through and read everything, but I certainly encourage you to do that. So... The first, uh, the first exile they do, they grab Daniel and his three buddies. You want to guess for who three of his buddies were? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I mean, we got this. Thank you for Sunday school. It's been fantastic. Children's church is great. So several years later, he's going to go in. Uh, he's going to grab a bunch of people from Judah again. This time, he's going to take a guy that you're probably familiar with. His name is Ezekiel. Okay. Same thing. The last one is about a decade later. Is when Zedekiah is the king. He goes in there. He begins to create a rebellion or whatever. Nebuchadnezzar's had enough. He goes in there. He destroys the place. He destroys the temple. Now, that's a big deal, right? Because Solomon built that temple. I mean, that was everything to these guys. He destroys it. He lays it down to the ground. So there is nothing left there. Everybody's in Babylon. Daniel will spend his entire adulthood in Babylon. He's actually going to survive through two different reigns because the first one is obviously Nebuchadnezzar, but later on the Persians come in and take over the country, and he's actually going to be a higher up during that time as well. Daniel was a, a good, uh, a good, good at what he did. Let's put it that way. And you'll notice a lot of connections. Put Daniel and Joseph. You'll notice there's a lot of trends that are exactly the same with those two. Now, when it comes to the book of Daniel, there is a ton of debate about the timing of this book and when it was written. And the reason it is, is because this book is so prophetic. The time frame that they call the silent years between the Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a 400-year period there that we don't have history written down, except in the book of Daniel. And it nails it to the letter 
years in advance. And that is why there's this debate. It's like there's no way that Daniel wrote this down prior to the events taking place. It's not possible, right? Of course, not possible. Yeah, God creates everything, but he can't write it down in advance. But basically, these say, this book gets divided into two sections. I know this is a lot of information, but I want to give you a foundation of this. The, the first six chapters are historical. The last few, 7 through 12, basically, are the visions and the prophetic side of things. And you'll see a little bit of that overlap. But here's the intriguing part, is that chapters 2 through the beginning of chapter 7 are written in Aramaic, where everything else is written in Hebrew. Now, I say that because Daniel is a very important book to the Gentile world. A lot of times we don't recognize that. And, and so you think about that. Why is it written in Aramaic? Why is some of it written in Hebrew? Well, there are parts that apply to the world at large, and there are parts that apply to the nation of Israel specifically. Okay? Now, that might be nothing. Maybe I'm looking into a, a little too much in there, but it's intriguing to me. Okay? But anyway, so the first half is all historical. The latter half is very prophetic, and that is the reason for the argument of the debate, because of how well he nailed it. Daniel's so incredibly accurate that they just don't think it's possible that he wrote it down, because he nails to the day, the day that Jesus is going to ride in to Jerusalem. To the day, guys, to the day. If we have time, not today, but I've got a plan for all of this, and I'm going to try to avoid a lot of the prophetic stuff, because there's, there's so much there, you could spend months on that, and that's really not what we're attempting to do. We've avoided a lot of the prophetic stuff in nature. The reason is because most of you have studied that at one time or another on your own because that's what intrigues us. We find that interesting. I'm trying to give you things that perhaps you haven't seen before, but we may address that here in a couple of weeks. Just kind of depends on how this goes so far. So I don't have a, a great roadmap laid out. But as I said, you'll notice that they're, they're Daniel and Joseph are very much alike. There's a lot of similarities between the two of them. In fact, those are the only two people in the Bible where nothing negative was ever written about them. Even Jesus has stuff negative that was written down about him. But, but as far as that goes, they're the only two, and they were both professional executives. So he was the prime minister of two different empires, basically, Babylon and then the Persians when Cyrus takes over. So let's jump into it. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, what is this talking about? Let's go back to 2 Kings for just a moment. Because remember, that's where we left off. With, this is picking up where that left off. And that's why if you're just reading through your Bible, you hit as soon as you finish 2 Kings. What do you hit? Well, obviously Chronicles and all that stuff, but Ezra, right? Ezra is as they're coming back to Jerusalem, so it gets confusing. 2 Kings 24, verse 1, and in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jehoiakim. He became his vassal for three years, his servant. They paid them money, everything like that. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he has spoken by his servants, the prophets. Now, we've not addressed that a whole lot. Surely the, at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not 
departed. Now remember, think back. I know it's been a few weeks, but think back. Remember Josiah, who was a good king, he was a reformer. This was laid out way in advance of Manasseh. Because he said, we're going to bring judgment, you're not going to be here. But because Josiah had done a good job, and he, was, he did right in the eyes of the Lord, he was as his father David, then God basically put a stay of execution and said, Josiah, as long as you're alive, you, this will not take place. And of course, next king takes over and it goes downhill quickly. But here it is. So, how did Nebuchadnezzar win this battle? Is it because he was stronger? Was it because he had more people? Was it because he had better forces? No. God turned Judah into their hand for judgment. It's the only way Nebuchadnezzar wins. God turns him over. Now, it says that he took them to the land of Shinar. And this is where it gets confusing. Because if Babylon is the city, Shinar is the county. Okay? It's the area, the region. You're going to see the name Chaldeans thrown out there a lot. I'll explain that momentarily. But this is the first of these three exiles. In this, Daniel, as well as some of his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember those guys, those names are familiar, are taken from Jerusalem. And we're going to meet them in just a minute. But remember, God had warned Judah way back when that this was coming. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Watch how God had attempted to thwart some of this. Verse 15, And the Lord God of their father sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people, on his dwelling place. He had compassion on the people of Israel. And what was his dwelling place? The temple. Who were the messengers? The prophets. What did we see before? That he had spoken by his prophets. All right. Verse 16, But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the kings of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on a young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hands, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all his palaces with fire, and destroyed all his precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So here's a question. Now, you as a good Bible student, when you're reading this and you see out of the mouth of Jeremiah, I should tell you to go do something. Look in Jeremiah. We're not going to do that today, but you should, okay? Now, again, this is all three of the exiles. This is all three encompassed in one. This is why it happened. But God has sent warning. Why did he do it? And it tells us at the very end. Actually, because we always assume it's just Manasseh, but there's actually something greater going on there that sometimes we overlook in verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, that's interesting. We know what the Sabbath is. Why is it a day of rest? But well, we've got to dig a little deeper here. Because what happens is Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, I can't say his name, grabs a bunch of people and he brings them back to Babylon. And as he does this, he takes items from the temple and he goes and he places them in the temple of his God. This is a very common practice. Why did they do this? Because they believe, in this case, it's Marduk, is the chief god of Babylon. They go in there as a thank offering. Here's the gold, here's the silver. Thank you for giving this battle and allowing us us to win. Keep that in the back of your mind going forward with what Daniel does, okay? 
but his god is Marduk. Now, what's interesting is this actually began happening, or at least the door was opened to the intriguingness of the nation of Judah, specifically Jerusalem and the temple, clear back with Hezekiah. Because if you remember, Hezekiah, the Babylons, they were, it was in a time of peace. At that point, the Assyrians were in rule, and Babylon was simply their puppet, nothing more. And they would, uh, he brought the king of Babylon on. He showed him all the riches of the kingdom. He took him through the temple. He showed him all the gold. He showed him everything. And Isaiah came to him and said, what are you doing? He's like, well, he's a nice guy. I, just, I mean, it'd be like taking somebody to the bank and opening your vault and say, hey, look at all this stuff I have. Please don't steal it. You know, or in the back of your house, some people have a safe or, or somebody stuff money under their, their mattress and someone walks in and you're like, hey, look at all of this, okay? Just leave it alone, right? Or you're just asking for trouble because what happens? The second it's missing, you're like, oh, I just showed them. It's like your kids and cookies, right? It's like, there were 12 cookies now, there's 10 cookies. Now, in my house, we blame the wife first, not the kids, but that's besides the point. And so, years before this, Hezekiah does this, and Isaiah's like, are you crazy because of this? Why? Everybody is drawn to riches. Everybody. It's no different today than it was back then. It's going to be no different when the, uh, the Antichrist is there. What does that mark of the beast do? It controls commerce. You can't buy or sell unless you have it. It's exactly what it's going to do. So Isaiah calls him out. But what about this Sabbath of the land? This is stuff, again, you have to read through the book of Leviticus to get this. And I don't know about you, I don't go back and read Leviticus that often. I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to read Leviticus 23 because it's so inspiring. It makes me feel good. It gets my day started. We're going to go and read some of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I gave you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So that is the Sabbath that is talking about. Let's look in the next chapter, chapter 26, because this is what's intriguing here. And watch this very carefully. So this, chapter 25 is the commandment. Now watch what 26 says, verse 27. And this goes way before this. There's a lot of context we're not going to get into. You should go read that. And after all this, if they do not obey me, this is God warning them, okay? This is what's going to happen if you don't do what I tell you to do, okay? We're in that same vein talking about the Sabbath for the lands as well as other things. But walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. God's not turning them into cannibals. He's telling them what's going to happen, okay? I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. Wait a minute, what idols? We're still early, guys. There aren't idols at this point or high places, or anything like that. My soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. and Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Now watch this. Then 
The land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. It shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. What we don't realize is this is God telling what's coming in the future. This isn't just some arbitrary warning. Look how specific it is to what we're dealing with right now. This is a judgment that's laid out clear back in Leviticus. They're not even in the land yet, and God's telling them what's going to happen with the land. Several hundred years apart, we're watching this fulfilled. Here's the crazy thing. is between the time of the Exodus, when the law was given, and the Babylonian captivity are 70 years of seven. He said seven times... I will punish you seven times greater, 70 times seven, 490 years. Why, and, and how long are they going to be in captivity? I told you last time, 70 years. So he's making up. They never did this, ever. So the land is now getting its rest. It is owed 70 years of rest. How long are they taken out? 70 years. That's a coincidence. We all know that, right? It's, it's got to be. There's no way it's that precise. Guess what? It's that precise. If I get some time... I don't know if I will. I will show you some mathematics because we all love math here. But down to the day about Jerusalem or the Israelites coming back into the land after World War II, if I get some time. It's, it's mind-blowing. Anyway, I don't want to get distracted by that. Every seventh year, they're supposed to do this. They never did it. Not one time. And yet, here it is. God said, I'm going to do it seven times. There's 490-year span. He, 70 years is owed. That's what's owed, and that's sure enough what there is going to be there. Now, here's the thing. I've talked about this before, these undesigned coincidences. Because remember, this is written later. This is the book of Daniel. It's written by Daniel. And so here we are, and you think he just went back to the book of Leviticus and said, oh, well, we've got to make this math work. No. This, again, just confirms the stories of Scripture coinciding with one another. All right, back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, or however you say that, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacy and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Why is he doing this? He wants to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. Because what they would do is that they would take over a nation, anybody was for this matter, they don't want them to have any recognition of their ethnicity. You are now one of us. What happened with the Israelites in Egypt? They were Egyptians, right? They didn't know any different. They didn't know who God was. They heard about this old fable about this Yahweh. It wasn't until the burning bush and Moses that he's even back in the picture because there's this time frame. Because now they're simply Egyptians. They're slaves, but that's basically what they are. He's going to create allies instead of enemies. Get them on their side. Now, you notice that it said that he wanted some of the king's descendants. Most believe that Daniel and those boys are truly descendants of of the king of Judah. They weren't just arbitrary. These were picked out, handpicked by them. These were higher ups. They had noble blood in them, basically. So it says they're going to train them for three years about the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And this is where this gets confusing because Chaldeans can mean an ethnic group. It's in this Mesopotamian area, 
but it can mean that. But mostly it is referring to the people of Babylon specifically, and it really later on especially becomes associated with soothsayers and astrologers and, and what we would call wise men, okay? That's what Scripture calls them as a whole. These are different titles that are given to them, but that's really what it's going to become associated with. And that is what they are trying to teach these boys in. You can worship Marduk. How do you minister to him and all of that? How do you serve in the kingdom as the kings? Or not as the king, but serve the king in the kingdom, I should say. And how do you become a Babylon, a Babylonian? Okay? Verse 6. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, wait a minute. I said it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Where are these weird names? Somebody spelled them wrong. Verse 7, to them the chief of the eunuchs gave the names, to, he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Okay, four people, they changed their name. Again, common practice. Why? You're no longer of your own. You belong to us. You're going to have a Babylonian name. In Hebrew, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has acted graciously. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, Yahweh, has helped. Now, they changed their names, and their names have Babylonian meetings, and they all have to do with the serving of Marduk, specifically. Okay? But why do they do this? They want them to lose their heritage. If you forget where you came from, we can control you. There's a reason that Hitler made the statement that if I can control the schools, I can control the country. I can control the people. Because you get in there, and you're indoctrinated, and that is what they're doing. Three years intense training. This isn't go to school for a couple hours and have recess, because these are young boys. I mean, they're, they're in their early teens at best when this happens. So, but you'll notice that the Babylonian names stick with them past chapter two. In fact, that's how we know them about, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many of you guys didn't even realize they had a different name before today? Right, most of us don't, because we've heard the stories. We've never actually gone back and looked at it. Now, Somebody's asked me before, it's like, why do we refer to them as the Babylonian name instead of the Hebrew names? Well, it's really quite simple, because that's what the Bible does. Now, Daniel, they're going to go back and forth between Daniel and Belteshazzar. But, but the other ones, it, after chapter 2, it's pretty much that's who they are the rest of the time. Okay, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacy, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, the king's being good to him. I'm going to feed you from my table. I ain't giving you the junk. These aren't sea rations, okay? He's feeding them his food. So why would this defile them? They're Jewish boys. These meals are probably not kosher, Okay. And very likely, these things would have been sacrificed to idols, which, again, all forbidden. Perhaps there was blood in them. I mean, all the dietary laws. We don't know for sure. We just know that Daniel doesn't want to do it. And so he makes a petition on behalf of the other guys there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to call them that because I don't remember the other names either. And for them. But when doing this, Daniel is establishing himself as a leader among these men. Okay? Verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Now remember what I told you about Nebuchadnezzar. Not a nice guy. He's smart here. I'm not going to lay down my life so you can eat vegetables and not be defiled. Suck it up, buttercup. Verse 11. 
So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs has set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, that word vegetable there uh, could be vegetables like you and I think of it. It seems to be in the original language. It's more like the seed of the vegetable could be ground up and things like that. So it's not, not, he's not getting celery sticks and carrots necessarily. It may be even less than that is, is what it seems to be implying. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this manner and tested them ten days. So he talks them into it. Why? Because God had given him favor with these guys. Verse 15. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus... The steward took away the portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. In other words, it worked. Now, I remember Alma, you know, when they were sharing about their last trip to, to uh, El Salvador, and they were saying, you know, in our culture, if, if you're fat, it's a sign of good things. And I'm like, no wonder they love me down there. I'm squishy. It's wonderful. But that's, I mean, he doesn't want to defile himself, so he refuses. And at the end of this, they want to stay loyal to God. Now, you notice it was just them. Everybody else ate the delicacies, but it was just them. In the face of all of this, facing death, eunuch could have killed him. King could have killed him. Anybody could have killed him because why? They weren't being obedient, but yet God had given him favor. Why? Because God is ultimately in control, and there's something being laid out beneath the service here. So he asked the guard. The guard was worried about the king's reaction and all of that. When you talk about these captives, see, the reason he doesn't want them to look emaciated is these were the sons of the kings, the nobles, these were the higher-ups. And these are high-value property in the eyes of the Babylonians. Because why? Because this is the best of the best that it comes from that. Now, Daniel will continue this entire exercise until King Cyrus takes over. Okay? Never changes. So... We look at all of this stuff, and we see this, but at the end of 10 days, he maintains the diet. Now we're in verse 17. As for these young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king has said they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about with which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in this realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus, which is what I was just saying. So watch what happens. They are obedient to God, right? We will not defile, defile ourselves. Because of that, they pass this test with the eunuch. God gives them a knowledge in all literature and wisdom, all literature. In other words, when they read it, they comprehend it, they understand. They were experts in the Babylonian cultures, in the false god worship, in the astrology. And guys, don't think, I mean, there is stuff that we use today from this astrological stuff that came out of this Babylonian empire. They were highly intelligent, okay? But on top of this, which everybody else had, the other three, Daniel gets the ability to understand visions and dreams, which is going to play a part here in a minute. This is at the end of the three years, and then Nebuchadnezzar brings them in. He's going to test them. And he said, no one compared to them. They said they're ten times better than the magicians. Now, that might just be a euphemism. Maybe they're not exactly ten times. It's just saying they're significantly better. But why did God do this? They were faithful to God's covenant. God is faithful to his covenant. That's what's taking place here. 
God didn't abandon them. Even in the middle of judgment, they were still faithful to the Lord. You see that in every judgment. Those who are continued faithful to the Lord in this thing, the Mosaic Covenant, God was still faithful to them. That didn't mean it was all sunshine and lollipops, but God was still faithful. And so they are getting favor. So he is going to be promoted, Daniel is. And as I said, he's going to stay in this position even through these other empires and other kings. All right, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Why? Because that's what they spoke. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Now, the Hebrew term here for Chaldeans, as I, I said a little bit before, is a designation for this Aramaic-speaking people group. So they were in Babylon. So some of the passages that say Chaldean is a synonym for Babylonian. It's, it means the same thing. But as I said before, this label later becomes this idea of these astrologers and these soothsayers and things like that, the magicians, okay, the wise men. And so this is what these guys do. They come in there and they interpret the dreams. The thing you've got to remember is these were not Nebuchadnezzar's men. This is in the second year of reign. These were his father's advisors. These were not his. They belonged to his father. Okay? So they want the king to tell them the dream and will happily interpret it. Right? Nothing could go wrong in that scenario, right? I mean, if you said, oh, I had this dream last night. Can you interpret it? I can make up anything I want. You can't say that I'm wrong. So, seems simple enough. Verse 5, then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and this interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and tell me its interpretation. Then answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. King answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. They're stalling. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So they had a simple request. Hey, tell us the dream. We'll interpret it. Well, he's not going to make it that simple. He not only wants the interpretation, he wants them to tell him what the dream was. Now, some commentators will say it's because he forgot the dream. He doesn't remember what it is. I disagree with that statement completely because he, he doesn't trust them. It's implied here that they've lied to him in the past. He, these are not his guys. These were his father's guys, number one. Number two is in this culture, dreams were looked upon very greatly. And if you forgot your dream, that was almost like bringing a curse upon yourself. So they did everything they can do. So he wants the, not just the interpretation, he wants them to tell him the dream. And so, of course, they can't do that. He wants to make sure these guys are legit. 
They say that no one can do this except the gods, and they're not here in flesh, right? You see how this is being set up to the guy that we just read about who was given a special gift to interpret visions and interpret dreams, right? It's all being laid out. Now, the king's not going to be very happy about this. One, you don't tell the king no, regardless of who the king is. Second, you know, Nebuchadnezzar kind of got a short fuse. Remember what he said, I'll kill you, I'll cut you in pieces, your houses will be an ash heap. I mean, he's a bad guy, and they know he'll do it. But something bigger is being set up here behind the scenes. There's an opportunity that Daniel's going to have to separate himself from all the other wise men. Okay? Verse 12. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, the king is ticked off. He's mad. And he wants all the wise men killed. Do you notice how I keep emphasizing that word? Remember, I'm going to land this plane a little bit on Christmas Eve. Wise men, if that helps you out any. I'm just, I'm just giving you a little, little uh, appetizer here. So these wise men include Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It includes them all. This is all of them. They're going to be in this, lumped in this. They had nothing to do with this situation, but it doesn't matter. He's going to wipe the slate clean. All his father's men are going to be gone. He's going to bring in his own guys. Okay, verse 14, then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decisions known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a, in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now, remember, Daniel had favor given to him by God. He goes into the king and says, Let me, give me time. Let me do this. And the king agrees. Now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is mad. He's not happy with any of them, and yet he decides to put a stay of execution. Okay, I'm going to give you some time. That means all the executions have stopped at this point. Okay? So he asks the king for time. He gives a grant. And he goes in and he tells his boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm just going to leave, use those names. He said, guess what, guys? The king had a dream. He's not telling us what it is, but we're going to go pray to God that God will tell us what the dream was and what the interpretation is. Now, I don't know about you in that situation. But if somebody comes to me and says, hey, they were going to kill us, but we bought some time. We're going to go and seek God, and so he will tell us what the dream was. I'm sitting, I might be having a few doubts. I don't know. These guys don't seem to have that problem. But for me, I'm thinking, okay, you're nuts. Thanks for playing. I'm just going to run away. That's what I'm going to do. But he goes in, they immediately start seeking God for the answer. And you'll notice that with Daniel, is he always goes to God, and God always rewards him. And, and after seeking God, he gets this vision and this dream, and he begins to praise God, and he worships, and you should read it in there. I'm skipping that part ahead for time's sake. But I mean, it's beautiful, the words that he said of how great God is who has given us this vision to give him uh, favor in this pagan country, all right? Jump down to verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king of the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Now don't confuse him because there's a king after 
uh, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar is going to sound almost the same. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation of the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. He goes to the king. He says, I've got your answer. The king's obviously curious. But... Daniel's about to tell him what he saw and what it means and all that kind of stuff. But before he does, he makes sure that he knows how he knows this answer. You notice I said the God of heavens. He's, he's separating that our God has given, has revealed this to me. He can answer this where nobody else could. None of your Chaldeans, none of your magicians, none of your astrologers, nobody could do this. But the God of heaven has enabled me to do this, not for my sake, but for yours, that you would know that was coming on. It's not that I'm wiser, it's that God has revealed it to him. He's making a clear distinction here. Verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. And the image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arm of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron of clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff, from the summer threshing floors, the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Who made him king? God. And wherever the children of men dwell, or of the beasts of the field, and of the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break into pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Thus, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms and shall stand forever, inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke into pieces of the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king that will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure 
and you may be sitting here thinking, man, that was a lot. Please tell me what all of that means. No, I'm not going into that today. We'd be here for a month if I attempted to do this. I will give you a quick rundown. These are four different kingdoms that are going on, ultimately with the kingdom of God. This is, you got the Babylonian kingdom, which is replaced by the Medes or the Persians. Same thing. Cyrus had a, I think his father was a Mede and his mother was a Persian or vice versa, one of those two. Later in comes the Grecians, Greek takeover. And of course, after that is Rome. That's what this is getting to, okay? It's laying out these kingdoms, and you see that lay out. I just don't have time to unpack all of this because that is not the point that we're trying to make. Now, you will notice that the stone made without hands, most would say, well, this is Christ in his kingdom. It's Jesus, right? I wouldn't argue with that. It makes a lot of sense to me. But what I wanted you to see here, and this is the reason I read all of that, is that this wasn't some arbitrary dream where Nebuchadnezzar was riding a unicorn while eating Skittles, okay? He didn't say, this is what you were doing and this is what it's me. This was intense. And this thing plays out through history. And Daniel had this unique ability to not only he received the dream from God of what specifically happened, but he also interpreted it. I wanted you to see what Daniel did, but more importantly, I want you to see Nebuchadnezzar's response to what Daniel did, because it is going to play a major factor into what takes place in chapter 3 and also chapter 6, okay? So we're in verse 46 here. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the what? Wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Nebuchadnezzar is blown away by this. Now, look at the distinction that he made. Daniel made it very clear who was doing this. It was God. Therefore, God got the glory, right? Your God is the God of all gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is something different than what we have because our gods couldn't do this and our people couldn't do this. Our, our priests and our prophets and all of these other guys couldn't do this, but yours could. Only God could do this. He makes that incredible statement that your God is the God of gods. And this is, again, is laying the foundation. But he promotes Daniel, Right? He's over the whole, he's a ruler over Babylon, the entire nation, but he is the chief administrator over all the wise men, okay? I hope I'm hammering that home enough that you're picking up on what I'm putting down. That's the bottom line. Now, next week when we get into chapter 3, we're going to defuse some misnomers that take place in there. But again, all of this is crucial to see what is going forward because we're ultimately looking at where we find Christ in all of this. Now, we just saw a glimpse of what's coming here, prophetically speaking. But there's way more to it than just simply that. So go home, read Daniel, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, read Chronicles. In fact, just don't stop reading. Just start reading, and then we'll pick it up here next week. Let's pray, and we'll get out of here.